Hey everyone, if you're like me, I bet you have a project or projects you want to finish, a writing project, or a writing project that you're itching to start, and we have an answer for you at NaNoWriMo. It's called Camp NaNoWriMo, and it happens in July, so you can sign up now. It's free. Go to NaNoWriMo.org and sign up. And the great thing about Camp NaNoWriMo is it has all the flavor and community of NaNoWriMo. Uh, it has a goal and a deadline approach, but it's not about writing a novel necessarily unless you want to write a novel. You can set your word count goal for 10 words or 10,000 words or, I don't know, maybe 10 million words. I haven't tested that one. But try it out. Goal and deadline is uh, create a midwife. Uh, keep writing during the summer. Great time to even use this time of July to plan your NaNoWriMo novel. So pick a creative project that gives you joy. And sign up on NaNoWriMo.org, and I hope to see you in NaNoLand in July. Hello, cartoonists, illustrators, animators, word balloonists, and story graphologists. I'm Grant Faulkner, a very text-based writer who is a bad drawer, who also has a pet love of comic books and graphic novels. I'm here with my co-host, Brooke Warner, who I know well, but I don't really know how she feels about comic books, or if she reads them, or if she thinks they're an unserious medium meant for kids with nothing better to do than waste precious hours when they could be reading high literature. So tell us, Brooke, <laughs> what is your relationship with comic books and comic books defined broadly so you can include graphic novels or graphic memoirs in this? Oh my gosh, my relationship. Well, uh, I suppose you could say it's a bit of an unformed one <laughs> or one like I watch from afar but don't interact with too much. Um, it it kind of reminds me of a relationship I'd have with like someone younger than me who I don't know very well. Huh. Uh, so that's how I think about it. Let's see. I don't think I have ever sat down and read a comic novel or graphic memoir all the way through. So I've read parts of my son's books, middle grade graphic novels, you know, that were basically all he consumed from second through fifth grade. And I will say, like, they impress me. <laughs> and I'm highly aware of some very acclaimed graphic memoirs. I think the form is completely incredible. The artistry and creativity it takes to do something like that, you know, to both write and illustrate is wonderful, you know. And at the same time, I think I just don't have a lot of experience with it. That's what it comes down to. And I did read Mira Jacobs' Good Talk when we had her on the show. I loved it. Um, but for whatever reason, like, I just see it as a little outside of my experience, perhaps a little bit like an alien life form that I'm not totally in sync with, but I do think I could get there. So how about you, Grant? Yeah, I love your answer, actually. My experience with comic books goes through like different eras. And and when I when I was a kid, I read them, but not exactly avidly. But I do remember staying home sick from school in the third grade and reading book after book of Peanuts cartoons. And that was just such a delightful day, even though I was sick. And, and, and I read the occasional, you know, Batman comic book, but I, but, but I think I read most of my comics in the newspaper each day, such as the, the very mediocre family circus in Blondie when I was young. <laughs> uh, mm. and fortunately I graduated from that. And, and one of my biggest influences as, as a teen was Berkeley Breaths to Plume County which was just so ornery and scathing visually and narratively. And then, then I loved classics like, you know, Gary Trudeau's Doonesbury and The Far Side. But I think my awakening to comics as an, as an art form truly happened when I moved to San Francisco because San Francisco has always been a hub for underground comics, starting with R. Crumb and maybe even before him. And I used to kill time in a comic book store next to the restaurant I worked in. And I was introduced to comic books that were about people, you know, like real people and their dramas, which was very different than the more action-y Marvel comics I read as a kid. 
And I was introduced to, you know, like kind of the classics, really. Mouse by Art Spiegelman and Alison Bechtel. And I read Ghost World by Daniel Klaus, you know, which later became a, a great movie. And then and then one day, a cook in the restaurant I worked in, you know, he, he showed me a sheaf of crumpled up papers stapled together. And it was this cool, cool comic zine by an unknown guy named Adrian Tomine, who has since gone on to illustrate many New Yorker covers, among other things. And that's one thing I like about comic books, you know, since it's sort of outsider art it spawns a real underground culture of comic book artists and fans and many comic books you know they still start as zines and while some of them are drawn so vividly and artistically i remember one of my favorites was called stick man and, and you know you guessed it the entire comic book included stick figures <laughs> but they somehow <laughs> even though they were all stick figures they kind of had personalities because of the way the figures interacted with the text so i'm uh curious if you have experienced that underground outsider element in comic books brook um and i i think it plays a bigger role in comic books than other arts just because comic books have never been embraced culturally until recently at least and only a little bit recently and i think a lot of people still disparage them as not real reading and i've even heard of parents and teachers who don't want their kids to read comic books but i have to wonder how many readers of serious literature uh that captain underpants is responsible for yeah, no kidding. I mean, it's a good starting point for a lot of kids. And then Dave Pilkey also did the Dogman series. You know, I mean, he's just gone on to do so much cool stuff. But um, yeah, I mean, maybe it is that underground outsider thing that makes it so alien to me, right? Because I came into traditional book publishing when I was quite young, like 23 years old. And um, that then led me to a, just a little bit more of a literary traditional sensibility but I was super aware of the scene out in San Francisco right because I was also living in Berkeley so I, I think that is you've touched upon the unfamiliarity and you know where book publishing and especially traditional circles has historically not been so embracing of these forms but that's really changing uh, because you have all of these hugely celebrated illustrator authors many of whom you just named you know, that are prolific and they're writing for ever bigger audiences. Uh, and in my world, graphic memoirs have been surfacing more and more, um, you know, and again, like their critical acclaim is something to behold. And they're also really beautiful illustrations. Uh, and, and you can, of course, see that most of these people are illustrating their own books, but sometimes people are partnering. So that's another thing. You don't necessarily have to do your own illustrations, although I think for memoir, that's more expected. Uh, and we've just seen a lot of good light shown on uh, all kinds of writers, but writers of color have also been really making a giant impact in this space. And I'm thinking about T. Bowie, who is someone I'd love to have on this show because I have looked at her uh, graphic memoir, even though I haven't read it all the way through. And if we have her on the show, it'll be an excuse to read it. Um, and then uh, today's guest, um, Kelsey, she mentioned Persepolis, which of course, you know, is a super famous series by Marjane Satrapi. And that was on my radar in early days, you know, I mean, so this is like, there's this way in which the, I think this outsider underground thing is getting mainstreamed and that is the story of graphic right now i'm sure some people are happy about it and some people probably have strong feelings about it uh, that are, are negative and wishing that wasn't the case but like i recently had drinks with a friend who works at 10 speed press and she was mainly catching me up on their graphic imprint appropriately called 10 speed graphic and they are doing some really cool graphic books including a lot of graphic histories of people such as alexander hamilton and frederick Douglass, among others and you know i think that publishers and authors alike are just finding lots of ways to bring more graphic works to people 
uh, because clearly adults love graphic books as much as kids, you know, so all good, all good things in this genre, I think, or this not even genre, we have to call it a form. Yeah, exactly. Good distinction. And I forgot to mention that the reason we're talking about all this is that our guest today, Kelsey Irvick, wrote and edited this amazing field guide to graphic literature along with Tom Hart and its publishers, Rosamental Press. And they have a whole field guide series that's wonderful. I was first introduced to it via their field guide to flash fiction, but they also have field guides to prose poetry and flash nonfiction. And, and their field guide series all follow a similar format, which is an essay from a master in the field followed by an exercise, and in, in this case also uh, an excerpt of, of a comic book. So it's for writers and teachers and students. And in this field guide, there are actually 28 comic book artists included. And as I mentioned, you know, beyond the essay and the exercise, you get this wonderful, you know, the comics and the drawings from all the authors. So it's, it's actually a type of art book. I like just paging through it and reading these excerpts. And one of the concepts, but I, but I do, you know, I, I want to also emphasize that as a writer, you can learn from this, even if you're just a text-based writer. And one of the concepts I like to think about is, is juxtaposition, how juxtaposition of art and text, you know, forms the composition of comics and how they, they have to speak each other and work together. And I started to think about how juxtaposition isn't like so much a writing phrase, especially with, with fiction and memoir or, or prose writing, uh, because it's, it's not like a visual medium, but juxtaposition is at play so much in writing as well. You know, there's the juxtaposition of scenes and the juxtaposition of words and phrases, the juxtaposition of themes. So, so reading this field guide was really good for my writing in unexpected ways, uh, in part because it's not specifically about writing. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I want to hear you say juxtaposition one more time. <laughs> yeah, I know. How many times can I say that? Uh, well, what I just said is going to be juxtaposed against whatever you say now. Exactly. Segwaying into, I do want to go back to Mira Jacob for a minute because she does have a chapter in Kelsey's book, which is cool. And I encourage you, as always, to go back and listen to former or uh, older episodes because that was a great one. And her graphic memoir, Good Talk, is largely about her being in conversation with her half Jewish, half Indian son, Z, who asks all sorts of questions. And um, especially as the tensions of the 2016 election were spreading from the media and into his own family. And part of what made it so interesting was that Mira had to think back to where she'd gotten her own answers about uh, race and color and sexuality and love. And so uh, in her exercise in this field guide, she centers a conversation with her father, who's a doctor, telling her about her period, not awkward at all. And some of her dialogue principles are that people often speak in cliches and people rarely understand each other and they usually fail to say the right thing at the right time. Uh, and then you have to know what your character won't say, <laughs> like what are they fearful of or inhibited by. And so it was super fun to read her essay and then read the graphic story excerpt from Menopause because it poignantly and humorously captures the art of miscommunication that forms all great dramatic dialogue for her. So I, I love this. I think it's a great book too. And like, you'll learn a lot about what the cornerstones of good graphic artwork are. Like drawings enhance the dialogue. We know that to be true. Um, and I remember in our interview with Mira, she talked about how her drawings uh, supported connection to content in a way that words alone cannot. And I think that this is one of the many draws of graphic stories, uh, because like the writing that book in particular, um, and her little excerpt menopause, they're funny, but they're way more funny because they're supported by the visual elements. And I have no doubt that that combo is what makes graphic books so good for kids. Uh, and it's important to remember that funny is one element. Kids love that, but kids also have more access to hard 
hard topics as well in these kinds of forms, which, you know, as a parent, I know I'm always looking for because I want to help James navigate through things that maybe feel hard to digest or understand. So there's, I think there's lots of good reasons that this form is exploding. I feel the same as an adult. I want Captain Underpants for for adults, in <laughs> fact. Um, but I feel like graphic narratives, you know, they're kind of like a half step toward a movie, but they can be perhaps more effectively, you know, imaginatively. And I say, I say that because you have to read them with an active mind and pause to think just like you do when you read a, a conventional book, but you're also being pulled by the visuals that place you even more viscerally into the story. So that text and graphic illustration um, interactions really, really interesting to me, that juxtaposition, you might say. <laughs> so I look forward to learning more from Kelsey after this very short break. Welcome back, everybody. I am super excited to introduce Kelsey Irvick, who is the author of the graphic memoir, The Keeper. And her previous award-winning books are The Bitter Life of, let me see if I can pronounce this, Boshina Nemsova, a text and image biographical collage, and then two works of fiction, Lillian's Balcony and For Sale by Owner. And her comics have been published widely, including in the Washington Post, The Believer, and Lit Hub, and two featured comic series of hers have appeared in The Rumpus. She has a PhD from the University of Cincinnati and is a professor of English at Indiana University South Bend, where she teaches creative writing, comics, and literary collage. Welcome, Kelsey. Thank you so much, Grant. Thank you, Brooke. I'm so excited to be here. I've told you before, I'm a big fan, a long-time listener, so <laughs> ah, it's exciting to be here. <laughs> thank you so much, Kelsey. I really appreciate that. And I'm interested in your story as an author. You know, I know I know that you first identified as a writer, meaning a text-based writer, but then you, you moved into graphic narratives. So I'm just kind of curious about your own personal journey to graphic literature. Yeah, I kind of have to go all the way back to being on the fiction track in my PhD in creative writing program. And um, we had two choices. You could be a fiction writer or a poet. And so I was a fiction writer, but after I got my PhD and started teaching creative writing, my students were really interested in creative nonfiction. So I found myself kind of merging over into this, you know, newly popular genre of non of creative nonfiction. And I started not just teaching it and reading it all the time, but writing it myself. And then I think slowly but surely, I was also starting to read graphic narratives, um, graphic novels. I read, you know, Persepolis and Fun Home, and they sort of changed everything for me. At the same time, I also came across Myra Coleman's book, The Principles of Uncertainty, which is not a graphic novel or memoir, but it's um, just this like beautifully illustrated, whimsically hand-lettered philosophical meditations on daily life that was originally published in the New York Times and then was printed as a book. And I like read that book and it was just so beautiful and like it had all, you know, just full of colors and handwriting. And I was like, wait, you can do this in a book? And so, you know, unlike I think many people who come to comics from like early comedy, you know, like an early love for comics and cartoons. Um, I came in kind of through the back door, a little bit through the graphic novels, but then also like Myra Coleman and Lauren Redness and people who were doing different kinds of image text work. Um, and then in my classes, I was teaching collage, like surrealism and collage and having my students like literally cut and paste things in journals and then do like their own literary collages with 
words and images. And, um, and that was kind of what led to me with my previous book, The Bitter Life of Bojan and Nemtseva. And, um, and then I really wanted to get into even more comics. So it, you know, it's kind of been a long journey and I can talk more about it, but that's kind of like the trajectory really fascinating and thank you for sharing because yeah like I always do think that people who get into this must just be like they love to draw from the time they were super little and then the rest is history right so it's great to hear like you can enter at any point and when we think of uh, text combined with images I think most of us think of comic books or graphic novels but we've communicated stories and images and text since language existed and you've written this wonderful in-depth history of graphic narratives in your book so could you tell us a little bit about the history historical highlights of graphic literature, because it's just not an artistic history that most of us know. Right. Yeah. And the history of comics and comic books goes back more specifically just, you know, a hundred plus years. But to look at all of the beautiful ways that we have always interacted with text and image and told stories in that way, from ancient Egyptian scrolls. And um, one of our contributors, Naoko Fujimoto, has a terrific essay about how she creates her graphic poetry inspired by Japanese imakimono. Um, so Japanese scrolls from like the 11th century. And I just, I feel like there's other of our sort of abstract poetry comics artists that are in the book are drawing on some of these older traditions. I love, you know, illuminated manuscripts from the Middle Ages. And a lot of those actually come up on Twitter now, you know, where people will show like little hilarious um, ways in which, you know, the original artists put in, you know, I don't know, little creatures and stuff that are, I don't know, like a rabbit eating the head of somebody, <laughs> um, you know, so there's just like, they're just very playful and, um, and, you know, before literacy and before the printing press, I mean, text and image was the way that we told our stories. And um, it was really cool to, to research so many different types of that in the introduction. Yeah, it's fascinating to think about. And in your, in your illustrated intro, I love that illustrated intro, your, your fellow author editor, Tom Hart, says, I used to dream of this day when comics was seen as this rich, diverse, even avant-garde art form. And it's interesting because this book, for me, is at once an instructional guide, but it's also a statement and a manifesto of sorts, you know, insisting that comics should get greater recognition. So I wondered, is part of your purpose for this book a, a fight for that greater recognition? And then, and then tell us how comics are an avant-garde art form. Yeah, I, I think it is because when I first started teaching comics and collage in my classes, it, it just seemed like something that was not really done, at least, you know, at least in my university. And it wasn't, and it's not like sort of, I mean, it's coming up as a field of study in, in the universities, but in terms of like teaching it in a creative writing program, I wanted to like, I, I think I personally, <laughs> also held some of these preconceptions about comics as being sort of not very literary. And, um, and it was, you know, works like Persepolis and Fun Home that like just changed my mind about that entirely. And so, yeah, I wanted to, on the one hand, help give them their due, but also expand our ways of thinking about and studying graphic literature beyond just traditional panel comics, right? So that's why I have the three categories of, um, of graphic narratives, which are a little bit more the traditional comics, but poetry comics, which was something I also really fell for 
you know, like these combinations of words and, and, and often abstract images. And it's just a beautiful way to put together a poem with, you know, using speech bubbles in different ways and, um, and using narrative captions uh, in lieu of just, you know, like lines of poetry. And then the third category of literary collage. So wanting to think about, which, which includes to me like erasure, visual collages where people are like finding and arranging poems and images, arranging texts, all sorts of things. So, but more found material. So yeah, I wanted to also ex- expand it a bit. And, and again, as a creative writer, I wanted to, um, I mean, I think there's a lot of great books about making comics from comics people. <laughs> and so I also wanted to make this open to people who are writers, maybe primarily or identify in that way, but who are curious and interested, which is where I was coming from. But this is also why I really wanted to partner with Tom Hart, who you mentioned, who's just been steeped in the comics world forever. And, you know, and so he brought this whole other perspective. And, and as he mentions in that intro, you know, I mean, he brings some of that historical context and interest, but he also brings this openness to seeing it in other ways. Graphic literature historically has been seen as kind of an outsider's art, and I think a lot of people have been proudly so, right? I mean, I, I think it's been a point of pride and, you know, and, and, and then anytime something gets a little bit more mainstreamed and appreciated, you know, by a broader scope of people, you know, there's a tension there. And I'm curious if you saw any of that tension, you know, in the compiling of this book, um, you know, anything to, to say about that, you know, pros and cons of mainstreaming and outsider art. Yeah. I, I mean, honestly, I think as the editor of this book, i I'm a little bit aware of possibly doing that, of, you know, making this more mainstream, you know, just the fact that it sort of has like come to me and has become something I'm passionate about. It does, it does feel like a step towards more mainstream. Um, And I think our contributors though, are also like represent a nice diversity of, of voices and backgrounds and stories that they're trying to tell that represent those sort of marginalized narratives and and I think they've found a beautiful way to communicate them. I'm thinking of like like Keith Knight is one of our contributors who does these satirical comics and cartoons about being black in America. Um, we have poetry comics by um, the trans writer Oliver Baez Bendorf and he has these beautiful like mixed media images of um, that like our, our sort of poetry comics that speak to his transition. Um, and so we've got some, some writers and artists really working in those margins and say, and telling these important stories. That's great, Kelsey. And I'm, I'm, I'm interested because you mentioned earlier about your own sort of a journey to the graphic narrative form and how there really wasn't a place for that in your creative writing program. And I don't think there's a place for it in, in many or any creative writing programs, perhaps. But but I think it's interesting because your 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 book amasses, you know, these these 28 comics creators, and each of them present not only an essay but but a discrete you know exercise and and a related excerpt of their own work, which does make it you know obviously a, a teaching tool. And so I was wondering if you can 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 share a favorite. Um, exercise or essay and tell us why that might be a favorite. I, I hate to ask you to choose favorites here because I know that you like all 28. So <laughs> I do, I do. Um, well, there are, 
a couple. We have a whole section on um, on transforming archival materials that have some really great collage type exercises about going into personal archives, historical archives, whatever, and like digging things up and transforming those stories. So like Deborah Miranda, who's the author of Bad Indians, in her book, Bad Indians, which we've excerpted here, she has quite a bit of writing, but she also does things like take her daughter's coloring book which has all sorts of <laughs> racist and problematic commentary. And she just like rewrites it and tells like the, the true story of mission Indians um, rather than the ones that are in her daughter's coloring book. And so, and she suggests that people go into the archives and, and kind of collaborate with them to make their own new stories. And she has a series of terrific uh, multiple um, exercise offerings and, Mita Mahato invites readers to make an elegy, like a, a, a comics elegy from using like newsprint and finding, you know, ephemera material to put together and, um, and create a, a poetry comic in, in the form of an elegy. Aidan Koch has fragmented and abstracted short story comics, and she kind of suggests taking like one person, like one image for a person, one image for a place and one image for a thing. And then like in each frame, just using a little piece of it to represent the whole, but not the entire thing. So it, it's also creates a really beautiful result. So those are just some that come to mind. I want to try them all. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for sharing those. And and some of the terms in the book were new to me. I mean, you started to describe literary collage a bit, so I can certainly wrap my mind around where that is. And actually, of all of the things, that seems like the thing I could probably most do as a not totally artistic person. Um, but what what are literary collages and what are poetry comics? So literary collage, um, I, it doesn't have to be text image. I talk about this a little bit in the intro so I think of like something like what David Shields did with Reality Hunger, where he found a series of passages and wrote some of his own and then created kind of a collage of them. But it's all text. Um, I do think that's literary collage in the, for the, for the field guide to graphic literature. I'm thinking more of where people would also bring in found images. And so to me, collage is like finding, you know, sometimes you make it some parts of it yourself, but you find, you cut, you paste, you rearrange. And um, so some of them are more literal visual collages with words, you know, um, <laughs> glued onto them. And some might have more uh, pastiche of found phrases, but also some text in there. Um, for poetry comics, poetry comics usually have the elements of a comic that you come to expect, like panels and speech bubbles and narrative captions. But instead of telling a narrative story, the, the words and sentences are more imagistic, fragmented the way poetry usually is. And so um, like Bianca Stone has a terrific essay where she's thinking about the lines you create through drawing and then the line breaks that you create in a poem and the way that, you know, you can break a line, but, you know, put a line in a speech bubble, put a line in a narrative caption and like reconstitute it in different ways that changes the way that the, that they're read and then add to it an image that you, um, that you draw or collage into it. So that would be one example. Well, Kelsey, to close, I, I want to challenge you with the test case. 
and that that test case is me <laughs> and like let's say i've got a vision for a graphic narrative but i'm just a horrible horrible drawer like i will not <laughs> i'm so embarrassed in my drawings and yeah. i i'm not adept at like photoshop for instance <laughs> so, so what, how would you guide me to tell that story as a graphic narrative oh my gosh that's like you're my favorite person to to have as a student in that regard. And I actually write about this in um, at the end of the book. We've included a pedagogy essay where I write about basically like how to teach creative writing or how to teach comics in a creative writing class where the assumption is most people are coming in, you know, without drawing skills. And I and I teach these general education classes at my university where students haven't drawn anything for years. So the first thing I would get you doing is doodling with your non-dominant hand, um, just to like free you up a little bit. And I would, you know, and I'd give you a couple of line drawings to imitate and you would start like, uh, like I, I bring in like, I know Picasso is problematic right now, but he has some great simple line drawings of like dogs and horses and camels. And so I have my students imitate those. And then I have them just come up with a song lyric and pair the two together and think about the ways that image and text just sort of like, you know, put them together and they start to like, you know, speak to each other in new ways. And um, so like, like once someone drew a wiener dog, a Picasso wiener dog with their non-dominant hand and, you know, like their song lyric was, did you ever know that you're my hero? But another person wrote, I walk the line as their song lyric. And it's, you know, these are two very different, um, you know, words, song phrases, and, and you put it with that dog and suddenly you're thinking of them in different ways. So I just get my students like just drawing every day, like just give them something to draw. You can also grant like later, I will let you do some collaging and I will let you do some, um, tracing, but I'm going to start you off just like, telling you just to draw With my left yeah, hand yeah yeah <laughs> i love that even better than the right <laughs> that's great kelsey what great ideas thank you I, I got a lot of this thinking from linda berry who is you know just of course she's she's an amazing teacher and she shares so much of what what she does um online and then in her books um syllabus and um making comics and so she had just has like great little moments in these books where she's got a little cartoon figure looking up at another cartoon figure drawing and saying, are you a bad drawing? How old do you have to be to be a bad drawing? You know, cause she's just like, it, it, like she just wants her students just drawing. And like, I just love that idea that let's just put that aside. If you, if you can't draw, it's probably cause you haven't drawn since you were seven, you know, and, um, and you can learn and get better. But I also really love, I love my students' drawings when they haven't, when they're, when they're, I love a non-dominant hand drawing. I love a contour drawing where people's eyes are closed. I love, I love that sort of shaky hand. So I would say just like roll with it. All right. You invited me in. I'm going to do it. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Good. Thank you so much, Kelsey. Thank you. Thanks, Kelsey. Thanks so much for having me. We'll be right back with today's book trend after this short break.
Grant, over these many months, we've covered a number of times this trend of book banning, uh, and it resurfaces because it's a troubling trend and there's always new stuff happening. And very recently, Amanda Gorman made national news because a single parent objected to her inauguration poem being included in his child's library uh, at school. And then I I think the school banned it, or at least it was a conversation. It was, you know, the fact that a single person could um, have that kind of power turned out to be a major national news story because under Florida's parental rights and education law, that's all it takes is one person to file an objection to a book, and then the book must be removed until it can be reviewed. So, of course, this was met with outrage, frustration, also the general hypocrisy of it because I saw a lot of conversation about how insane it is that a single parent has the power to ban a book uh, that might adversely affect their child in their opinion, but then parents have no sway over gun regulation, you know, which is just an issue that all school-age children have to contend with. It's like, what is wrong? But going back to the book banning stuff, it just continues to boil on and on and on. It has already reached its boiling point and keeps going. Yeah, you said it. It's really uh, depressing. And I'm going to reference a June 9 story in in Publishers Weekly titled Librarians Strike Back Against Comics Bans, um, which shared what librarians are doing in the wake of all this pressure. And sadly, some of them are leaving the profession. Um, But many of them are fighting back, you know, processing and disputing challenges and helping others counter censorship. And but, you know, the, the, the reason some of them are leaving the profession is actually that many of them are getting harassed online or or in other ways and i just cannot imagine this going after a librarian on social media media simply because you know you object to a book that's being carried in a library right exactly and it's good that we're covering this again in a show that's all about comics and graphic novels and graphic memoirs uh because these are books that seem to get people really riled up Um, a lot of parents and parent groups like the ironically named Moms for Liberty focus on these kinds of books and a lot of them because they're written by writers of color, LGBTQ writers and writers on the margins are being targeted as, you know, quote unquote, inappropriate because they're tackling issues of identity, racial identity, sexual identity. Uh, And we were talking earlier, of course, about how graphic form in general can make tough topics easier to understand and more digestible. And so most families are welcoming these kinds of books for their kids or for themselves. But, you know, certainly there are those who are taking it as an opportunity to center into the culture wars on this topic. And it's just, it's sad, but it's also just kind of weird to watch it all unfold. Yeah. So speaking of weird, I was was struck by something I read in that Publishers Weekly article that Illinois actually passed a bill to ban book banning. (laughs) Uh, And while that's a bit of a mind twister, there have been other wins as well. Pen America and Penguin Random House, along with a group of authors and parents, filed a federal lawsuit in Florida for violating both the First and Fourteenth Amendments because the books being targeted by school districts there are disproportionately books by non-white and or LGBTQ plus authors. And everyday people are seeing that they need to actually take actions to fight back and and one of the most meaningful ways to do that is for parents who are against book bans to get spots on school boards and a lot of parents are doing just that thankfully 
Yeah, and I was also heartened to read that librarians who want to defend what they buy in shelf are also being given a lot of new resources. Uh, so Penn America, as you mentioned, and Penguin Random House, and also the ALA, which is the American Librarians Association, uh, are just a few who've put out librarian guides. Um, and this story that we both read that the show is kind of um, focusing on shared that librarians were bracing themselves for backlash as June approached because it's Pride Month and they feared not only bans, but also threats. Uh, and so the takeaway from this story is that librarians and parents and concerned citizens are, are fighting back, which is a really good thing. But these conservative groups are super motivated by their causes. And Kelly Jensen, who is a former librarian who covers book censorship for Book Riot, was quoted in the piece saying, even if we take down Moms for Liberty, these other groups are proliferating. I think we're in an era when this is going to con- where this is going to continue. Uh, and one of the biggest problems is the lack of literacy about how to read and understand graphic material. So that's important since that's part of what we're covering today, Grant. That's right, because th- these groups are claiming that graphic novels in the memoirs are obscene, for instance, if there's just one panel that features sex or nudity, or they're claiming that stories by and about black people are teaching critical race theory. So in, in short, there, there's a lack of understanding and education in some circles, but the people at the very top who very much know what they're doing are exploiting and manipulating language to kind of throw fuel on the fire. Yeah, right. And there's that crusader mentality. You know, it can be very difficult to combat, especially if you're a person who got into library science not to be an activist, but just because you love books. And uh, I think it's just hard to see the damage being done to our librarians and to know that many are leaving because they don't have the stomach for the fight. Fortunately, the upside is that some of them do. The, the Publisher's Weekly Story ends with a quote from Detroit Public Librarian Shira Polarski, who says, we're going to keep fighting because that's what we do. And I think, in fact, you might say a love of books is a form of activism simply because you love putting stories into the world. So, so please thank your local librarian or any librarian you know for what they're doing. This is not an easy time to be a librarian. And it might not be an easy easy time to be a writer either, but we want to make it easier for you, if only by providing a community, a conversation, a few helpful tips, and some stories from the trenches. So when you listen and leave comments for us and give us uh, votes, it makes it easier for us to be podcasters. So eternal thanks, keep writing, and we'll see you next week. Keep reading and thank your librarian.